Hi, it's David Freudberg from Humankind on Public Radio. Stay tuned. Our podcast begins in a moment after this brief word. It's true that you never really know what someone else might be going through. But just think about what might happen if we did. How we might treat each other with more patience and compassion. The world needs us to take a step back and listen to one another. I'm Kathleen Merrigan. And I'm Ingrid Busson-Hall. We're the hosts of This Is My Silver Lining, the podcast where, each week, we pull together the strongest threads of our humanity, courage, kindness, compassion, and gratitude. Our guests explore their toughest moments and how rising to the challenges led them to discover unexpected opportunities, connection, and community. We know you'll be inspired by these stories about the people you might pass on the sidewalk or stand next to in line at the grocery store, about what inspires them to take chances, to be kind, and to find gratitude despite the obstacles that they face. Subscribe to This Is My Silver Lining on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Just because a a person is in need, a person is on the street, does not mean that they have nothing to give. I mean, I have met the most amazing people who have had incredible lives, but often due to alcoholism and, and drug addiction, they lose that. But they haven't lost their brains, they haven't lost their heart, they haven't lost their abilities. Lessons about caring for people living on the margins, inspired by Catholic worker founder Dorothy Day. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Founded in the Great Depression, Dorothy Day's Catholic worker movement to aid the poor has reverberated over the decades since. Centers like the Christie Street location in New York City have inspired more than 200 Catholic worker houses across the United States. Soup kitchens and other facilities, those who come to help, practice voluntary poverty and service to the needy. That was the vision of Kathy McKenna, a recent college graduate in 1966. With the man who would become her husband, Kathy founded Haley House in Boston's dilapidated South End. Although the surrounding neighborhood has now largely gentrified, Haley House, with expanded services, is still going. When John and I first uh, moved into Upton Street and started living with um, men from the street, we were absolute pacifists, and our philosophy was, you know, just love. And of course, after the first day and the first bottle thrown against the wall, it was like, well, we better have a rule about no bottles in the apartment. And day two and day three, et cetera, et cetera. But I I also remember the first time John had already been to uh, Christie Street, but the first time I went down to Christie Street and a friend of ours was on the house. And I remember him and a pal um, bodily removing a guest who was creating disturbance. And I was so shocked. I was like, where's this absolute pacifism here in the Catholic worker right here at the heart of it? 
And that, of course, became, for us in a soup kitchen setting, day in and day out, a constant struggle. What do you do with the person who is acting out, who is harming himself or others? I don't think it was ever resolved, ultimately resolved. But what I took eventually was the thing that mattered was our intention toward that person. If we were insulted and angry that this person was making my life harder um, and just wanted to get him the hell out of there, that would be a really unproductive interaction, whether it was done you know, ex- externally from a peaceful perspective or violently. But if we really cared about this guy and we really held high expectations for him and we didn't want him, because for the most part this happened when people were drunk, and we knew when we were going to see these guys the next morning, and if they had smashed somebody's face open, whether it be another guest or a volunteer, they were going to feel terrible tomorrow morning. So why would we just be in a situation where we would allow that to happen? To me, it became a case of of not intervening was a way to disrespect the person's highest goals for himself. In the sense that they were sort of crying out for some boundary to be set. Well, even if they weren't crying out for it, the situation was crying out for it. And, And knowing, knowing how often we had coffee in the morning with people who were regretting what they had done the night before... Were there cases when you were able to allow the person to feel truly cared for and respected that it did defuse the situation? Absolutely. Not always, for sure, but um, absolutely there were times. At, At those times when I was in the best place, when I was the most in touch with my own motivation and my own words and actions and how they were coming across, absolutely it had a, a huge difference in people's response, in the, in the guest's response. Today, more than 50 years since it was established, Haley House operates a soup kitchen, food pantry, elder meal site, more than 100 units of affordable housing, an urban farm, and the Haley House Bakery Cafe. Most recently, they opened Dudley Doe, inner-city workplace that offers a living wage for employees and, for customers, healthy pizza. Dorothy Day, speaking about a French Catholic priest who was a guiding light for the Catholic worker movement. Peter Morin pointed out that this very basic duty of the Christian was to share with others and by voluntary poverty uh, get rid of his superfluous goods. And while men were hungry in the world to go ahead and do everything possible to feed them, where they were without homes to shelter them, and to contribute by one's work and by one's attitude of one, towards one's work to the common good of the world. 
there's a basis of meeting with all, whether they're believers or unbelievers, whether they're agnostics or whether they call themselves atheists. That on the very ground of the common good, men can meet together and try to solve these problems. The works of mercy are laid down in the 20, 30, 25th chapter of St. Matthew. The work of feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and sheltering the harborless and visiting the sick and visiting the prisoner and burying the dead and so on. And in the Catholic Worker we pointed out how the works of war are those of destruction of food, uh, spraying of the crops, defoliating de, uh, the jungle and the forest, flooding the fields, destroying <coughs> homes, bombing out villages, the exact opposite of the works of mercy, which are the command, which are the, the judgment, which is uh, laid down in the New Testament, the means by which we are to be judged, by how we have contributed to our fellow man, whether by works of war or by works of mercy. Dorothy Day recorded in 1966. She passed away in 1980. Her granddaughter, Kate Hennessy, recently wrote a family memoir. Kate's mother was the only child of Dorothy Day and grew up in the atmosphere of charitable giving that suffused the Catholic worker movement. In a recent interview, Kate reflected on the importance of developing a humble relationship with a needy person one intends to serve, based on mutual giving and receiving. I mean, I think it's absolutely essential to have that relationship. I think that we, we run grave danger in believing that we can give and not receive, um, that we know the answers, that, that we know how to fix things. We don't. I mean, these are intractable problems. Um, we live in a very complicated society that has a great deal of uh, grave um, results in people's lives. And, and to think that we can sort things out, I think, is very dangerous. Um, in terms of the, the person-to-person um, engagements that happen in, in, in at the Catholic Worker and at other places. And I think that if if you don't open yourself to, to see who they are, to see what they can give, and it may be something very simple. It may be just a conversation, or it may be um, maybe they can mop the floors that day. I mean, you know, there's so many different ways that people can give. As my mother would say, you know, hospitality is at the heart um, of everything that the Catholic worker does. Uh, hospitality was at the heart of much of what my mother did. So what does that mean, hospitality? You know, it... Um, I think it is, it is this constant kind of openness to whoever comes in through the door, and that means not just feeding them, but being open to whatever they have to, to give back. And I think that that very um, openness, that very relationship, has the seeds for great change within, within everyone, all the parties of that situation. And by that, do you mean that receptivity to a person who's struggling helps them to feel like they can find their strengths and become uplifted? Well, there's no guarantees. <laughs> Definitely no guarantees. But um, 
yes, I mean, there's always the, the potential for that, always. And I think that um, to keep your, your mind open to that and your heart open to that is essential, but also can be, I mean, there's a lot of burnout in, in this area, you know, of helping those who are truly destitute um, because the, the needs are so great, the, um, the resources are so limited. Did Dorothy Day battle the risk of burnout? Oh, yes. <laughs> she was at it, for, you know, for 50 years. She lived at the Catholic Worker her entire life, and um, she had ways of dealing with it. She would flee. You know, she believed in when things got too rough, you fled, and she would advise people to do that. Um, she would flee to the beach. You know, she, she took a great deal of spiritual sustenance from water, from the ocean. Um, so she would go out to Staten Island when she, when she felt that she was becoming too irritable and, and um, impatient with people. How about for you, Kathy? Have you battled the prospect of burnout? Um, yeah, of course. Kathy McKenna, founder of Haley House in Boston. But uh, I think, you know, built into my life it was a more, a more uh, balanced situation. I mean, you know, after the first uh, six years, we were living across the street. I had a, a home, kids husband. There was a balance in my life, a daily rhythmic balance that enabled me to not get so overwhelmed. And I never had the same claustrophobic existence around poor people. I really took advantage of the opportunity to get away um, as I developed uh, a spiritual practice to get away on retreats and really... Physically as well as spiritually. Physically. And I think... Some of the teachings that resonated most with me were the ones around this idea that uh, we are all one, that actually, in many ways, there is no separate I. You know, there, you know we are, whether from a, a Catholic perspective of the mystical body or a Buddhist perspective of the fact that there is no self and that there is there is a oneness to to all. I think there's even something in in, uh, in in Christian scripture that talks about you know you don't thank your hand for feeding yourself because it's part of you. It's just expected. It's it's the natural it's the natural law. And in some ways, the same thing is true for us as people. If it's only because we see that we're that if that we see each other as other that gets in the way with our being able to be intimately involved in whether it's another person's needs or another person's gift, not feeling badly if we're on the receiving end and not feeling inappropriate if we're on the, we happen to be on the giving end. Examining the life of Dorothy Day, a remarkable 20th century journalist who advocated for social justice and service to the needy. She's credited as founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Dorothy Day, Part 2, to obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org.
all want to know what made Dorothy Day who she is. Um, what are all the influences that that um, that led her to be who we know her as, which is you know quite extraordinary. Kate Hennessy, the youngest grandchild of Dorothy Day. And when you look at her early life. Um, you know, things happened to her that happened to many women. Um, she had a, one very difficult and um, devastating love affair in which resulted in a pregnancy, and um, she had an abortion. And the abortion was so traumatic to her that um, she was afraid that she would never be able to have children again. And this was a, a huge sadness and wound. Really haunted her. Uh, yes, it haunted her. And um, what that resulted in, that abortion, that experience resulted in, is that she did become pregnant six years later with my mother. And that experience was so joyous to her. I mean, it, it really, you know, it was an answer to her prayers. She really wanted to become a mother. And um, the fear of not being able to to be one was was a huge burden. And in this process of feeling this great joy and gratitude, I mean, that's what opened her heart even more in this quite complex process of a conversion, which I think started at a, at a very young age. Um, and not just the birth of my mother, but I think the birth of my mother was this was an experience, a, a, a sacred experience that she was not going to squander, that... Um, that she was going to do something, um, further her life in ways that um, maybe she wouldn't have, it wouldn't have occurred to her if she had never had a child. Dorothy Day gradually embraced Catholicism as her faith, a choice that was solidified when she became exposed to her church's social teachings of good works. Through personal struggles, including a failed marriage and two suicide attempts, she took solace from support derived from religion. Much of that journey was recorded in copious diaries maintained over Dorothy Day's lifetime. I would have to say that the, the thing that um, affected me most, about two weeks after my mother died in 2008, my grandmother's diaries were published. And um, about a year after they were published, I was finally able to sit down and read them. And you, I don't, you hadn't seen them before I'd that? seen portions of them, but I hadn't sat down and just read the, the, the entire book. It's, it's, a, it's a big book, um, and it's only a portion of her diaries, of her writings. But um, I sat down and read that book, and I read it probably in about five days. I mean, I, I really could not stop reading. And the reason I think that this happened is because of this daily sense of something other, something deeper, something mysterious, something beyond what our day-to-day -day lives, something beyond our understandings of God. I mean, she didn't always write of spirituality, but she wrote in a way that, to me, exuded spirituality in terms of how she observed the world, um, both in terms of the natural world and in terms of other people. Um, she had a, a, a wonderful eye. For detail in her writing, both published and unpublished. And so I started to hear this, this wonderful voice, this kind of a, a river of, um, of, for lack of a better term, spirituality, just in terms of how she lived in the world. This, this underlying constant awareness that she had of 
the sacramentality of life on all levels that made the most impact on me. And has that impacted you in your own spiritual journey? Of course. Um, and that spiritual journey is <laughs> still going on, of course. Um, you know, both my mother and my grandmother are very interesting people spiritually and very different. Um, my grandmother was very much a... Um, she loved the church. She loved the Catholic Church. She loved the sacraments. She loved the rituals. She loved the language. Um, it was very important to her. You know, communion every day, very important. She, she, she said that um, one's prayer life needs three hours a day, and she would wake up early in the morning and, and read and pray. Um, and she you, loved you've, the Psalms. you've described scenes where she was with her rosary beads. Often saw her with her rosary. Um, apparently, I learned the rosary at her knee, but I don't remember that. <laughs> I hate it when I lose those great memories. But um, yeah, so there, there was a, a, a daily um, presence of, of her religion. Um, my, my mother, who was not a convert, who grew up Catholic and went to Catholic school, was educated by the nuns, um, was a very devout Catholic, uh, left the church when she was in her 40s. And so I have grown up with this, you know, two very different paths. And my mother was nature-based. I mean, I call her an earth mother, even though she kind of snorted at me when I would say that. But, <laughs> I mean, she just, she would just touch things and they would blossom, um, not only plants, but animals and people. You know, she just had this, this wonderful way of, of, of allowing creatures and, and plants and children to blossom. Um, so there's, you know, two very different, outwardly different expressions of faith. And, um, I, you know, that's been an interesting education for me to, for, because for many years I thought they were opposed. I thought they were in conflict. My grandmother was of the church. My mother wasn't. And um, it's taken me a lot of years to see that, that there is no conflict. It's just a different expression. And, of course, now... I have to find it. was a third thread, which is mine, and that's, that's to be discovered. Wrote Dorothy Day in her autobiographical work, The Long Loneliness, Writing a book is hard because you are giving yourself away. But if you love, you want to give yourself. You write as you are impelled to write about man and his problems, his relation to God and his fellows. You write about yourself because in the long run, all man's problems are the same, his human needs of sustenance and love. I am a journalist, not a biographer, not a book writer. The sustained effort of writing, of putting pen to paper so many hours a day, there are human beings around who need me, when there is sickness and hunger and sorrow, is a harrowingly painful job. I feel I have done nothing well, but I have done what I could. Her granddaughter, Kate Hennessy. She had so much work to do at the Catholic Worker. Um, she, you know, at the Catholic Worker and all the details that that entailed, her writing career, um, because that's how she earned money for herself, um, and which she would always give away. She gave everything away. It's amazing. 
um, and also taking time to keep family ties strong. I mean, that, that um, these things, any one of them would have been a full-time job for anyone, and yet she did them all constantly. She never stopped. Tremendous amount of energy. You mentioned uh, that she gave everything away. That's so countercultural in this hyper-consumerist society. Can you explain what voluntary poverty is, why someone would be drawn to that? I, I think... The definition of voluntary poverty has to be a personal one. Um, certainly for me, what it's come to, to mean is living a simple life, living simply. Um, we don't need all of the material goods that we think we need. Um, and there are ways to just kind of, you know, wean ourselves off of, of that kind of um, addiction. It really is an addiction, I think, to things. You know, my grandmother never had that addiction to things. She she had an extraordinarily loose um, need for material goods, so she never quite, you know, had, dealt with that. Except for except for her books, um, her books were very precious to her, and they often walked, as many things did at the Catholic Worker. Um, so that was one element that that was very painful. It would drive people up a wall, actually. They would give her gifts, and she would just turn around and pass them on. And to her, that's what you did. It was, it was kind of like this gift-giving economy, really, is um, what she did. And my mother was very much the same way, except that my mother, being a craftsperson and a gardener, had a lot of more tools and, 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 and things um, that, that she used. Um, and, but to me, that, that also is living simply. I mean, what do we actually need um, is a really important question. So voluntary simplicity, does that mean not having any food in the fridge? Does that mean not having a fridge? Um, well, there's a difference. My grandmother was very clear. There's a difference between poverty, poverty and destitution. Um, people need things. I mean, we need food. We need clothing. We need shelter. Um, she never said those things need to be given up. Now, it does. There is a certain. There's an element of, um, let's say, instability that can happen, particularly if you choose lives. If you choose to be an artist, if you choose to be a musician, if you choose to be a writer. There's a lot of uh, instability, insecurity in that kind of life, and so sometimes there won't be food in the fridge. So you have made it. You have made a choice, um, or you have to choose between being a writer, having a mortgage, you know, so there, you do make these choices. And what does that mean if you don't buy a house? Where do you put yourself up? Um, you know, people face these questions all the time, uh, these kind of decisions. Um, and, you know, these are, these are important decisions um, because you can put one foot wrong and that will change the direction of your life for, for decades, you know, take you away from what your, your vocation is calling you to do. You know, my grandmother talked a lot about vocation. We have the, the, mo the richest, you might say, life as well as the poorest life. When I say we dress like lilies of the field. We have shoes that are these kind of handmade shoes that come in and they happen to fit. So somehow we get the clothes that we need and the clothes that last for a lifetime. And uh, we have what we need, all of us. The Lord provides it. Ask and you shall receive, and seek and you shall find. It happens again and again. And uh, the more you give, the more you receive. I remember in the earliest days of the Catholic worker, we'd empty out the house 
where somebody had been evicted, lost all their furniture, and then found another place to live after the city had taken it away, dumped it, I suppose, out in the ocean. And we would have to go ahead and take whatever we had and hand it over to the family. And I'm sure there's the history of, of most of the lives of those who trust in the Lord and leave it in his hands and, and rejoice in poverty. There was a philosopher, I don't know whether it was Socrates or not, who said he loved to wander through the marketplace looking at all the stuff he could do without. <laughs> Dorothy Day, speaking in 1966. She was a journalist, social activist, and founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. She died in 1980 at age 83. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugars. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Ken Rogers, and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Dorothy Day, Part 2, is Humankind Program number 255. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.